Hello, and welcome to the Nostalgia Podcast. A podcast where we discuss the retelling or continuation of pop culture favorites as seen through a queer and feminist lens. My name is Eric Lefebri. And my name is Jessica Tercero. And this week, we have a special guest on the podcast. Jay Levy, welcome to Nostalgia. How are you? Oh, I'm great. And uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to uh, to be here and talk to y'all. And uh, yeah, I've done a lot of great prep work. I'm really writing that balance of, you know, I wanted to be respectful of this very professional environment, but also bring that Jay Levy <laughs> vibe. Oh, yeah. So all my notes are on a legal pad. Ooh. Oh, damn. Also okay. Has some glitter on it. I feel it. There's a slight <laughs> shimmer from where I pulled it from. So, so it's a good mix. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Right on the so, right on the line. Throw throwing in a bit of legalese, I hope. <laughs> I mean, in the true spirit of the producers, just make it gay, right? Make it yeah. Make it yeah. Let's keep it kicking. Oh. oh boy, there's so much to talk about. It's Speaking like... of, that's the uh, property that we watched yeah. this week. We watched the uh, 60s Mel Brooks producers and the uh, 2005 remake of the producers. And there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. I also so... like that it's another kind of like hairspray moment, just in terms of the way it got remade, where it was like acclaimed movie musical, then movie musical. I mean, obviously, there were more iterations of it, but like. In this very specific, I just, I love that. I think that's so fun. Because it is kind of a, it's not a sludge just as far as watching kind of the same story a second time. It's like, oh, this is kind of a brand new spin on this other thing with like new scenes and new dialogue and new sort of like pratfalls and fun little bits. Like it, it felt like. It felt like a nice reimagining because the songs. It's kind of funny that it went from being a movie about a Broadway production to being a Broadway production of the movie about yeah. the Broadway production to then becoming uh, the, yeah, it, it's it's fun. It is fun. <laughs> what a fun little thing. And it was, it, if I remember correctly, this sort of, they kind of came out around the same time as they were doing a lot of movie versions of musicals in that like there was that Broadway boom right like Broadway's always been a thing and they were taking musicals and turning them into movies back in since like singing in the rain I and mean, we you know you go all the way the back musical oh yeah <laughs> but turning movies and because like Mel Brooks did it a few times then he did Young Frankenstein Young and he Frankenstein turned that, musical yeah right I mean it was pretty cool I enjoyed I think I enjoyed watching this one a little bit more than watching Hairspray but that's also I'm, I'm jilted 100% I, I 100% you know. there with you we have opinions on hairspray. We do. I mean, I'm in the other category where I personally like hairspray more than I like the producers, but that's just an aesthetic choice. Like as a, oh. a musical lover or as somebody who likes musicals, I'm like way more of a hairspray queen than a producer stan. If that makes sense. I get that. And I, I will think- say I, I've done some of my research earlier and I've listened to some episodes and I know we don't do gatekeeper stuff and I am not a big fan of that either. But I do, I am a, I'm a lover of the tidbits and the little nuggets and the little things. Oh, uh, yeah. And I think it's because I hyper-focus on those. So I'm excited to share a couple little things that uh, I enjoy about these two versions, especially this movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into everything, so my, my relationship with the producers is, I think I saw the 2005 version once. But I just remember one of my exes, his best friend, really, 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 really loved the producers. And that's basically, he also just really, really loved Mel Brooks. And that's basically, like, I I didn't remember shit about this. Like, I didn't remember, like, of course, you know, springtime for Hitler, but I didn't 
remember, oh, the writer of the production. Wow. Okay. Like there's a lot of things that I did not remember. So watching this, I felt like I didn't, I felt like it was all brand new basically. Um, Oh yeah. Eric, what did you? I mean, for me, I knew almost nothing about the producers going into this apart from Nathan Lane being one of the leads in the sort of remake of the musical. But again, that's because like I was saying earlier, I'm obsessed with Nathan Lane. I think anything he's ever been in, he's gold. I literally couldn't stop listening to the Adams Family movie or the Adams Family musical cast album when I was in high school. Like, like even just that, like that was like a really big thing. And then like he's been in literally pop cultural ephemera of my entire like upbringing he's been in almost everything and it's always been like nathan lane nathan lane but i'd never seen the first one or the musical so this was like a first complete fresh set of eyes no history with it at all so i'm coming at it from a very very fresh surface level untethered perspective i'm excited because that's the complete opposite for jay yes <laughs> I've seen this once or twice. Um, I, I may have. Uh, I so my background. My brother. Two of my brothers are music uh, performers uh, in New York. Uh, they both went to a school for musical theater. After they both went to the same program. My one of them is about to graduate from that program right now. And uh, so shout out my brother Nathan. Uh, he Nathan and Adam. So Nathan is actually the understudy for Evan Hansen for Dear Evan Hansen right now. Oh shit! Really? No shit! Yeah. Hell yeah! Yeah. yeah. That's and incredible. My, and my brother Adam is just uh, has been a part of a bunch of different. Uh, he was in the touring production of Waitress, mm-hmm. um, and he also ju- uh, is now in the new touring production of the Disney. Well, it was called the Disney Princess Party. They had they just announced that is now an official Disney licensed product. And so Disney's putting them on tour with that. And, and it's, it's basically all the Broadway princes and princesses, but, but musicals have been a part of my family for a long, long time. Like it was always wow. kind of funny. My stepdad tells a story about like how he was kind of excited. Like he would come over and me and my brother, like, he's like, Oh, well, I'm going to rent, I'm, I'm going to rent movies for you and your brother to watch. And like, my mom is getting us ready for movie night and it's well, who wants to watch West side story. And we're like, yeah. And he's like, I never saw anybody freak out. Like two young kids freak out to watch West Side Story <laughs> and knew all the songs and knew all the things. So my family and I have seen, we saw the musical when it was on tour, loved it. Like, you know, and it's, it's been hard for me. Well, not hard, but different for me to start. Like I'm reconciling with like things from that. I love from my younger age, looking at it through a critical lens now and understanding like where my line is for what I will enjoy still or what I can't. And so it was kind of interesting yeah. to watch it with a critical eye for the first time, like really critical. So I'm excited to hear what y'all thought, though, especially because I'm I was also hoping that y'all would kind of feed me so I could know where to swerve. <laughs> oh, don't no, worry. I mean, we are steering I... this ship and yeah. also willing to go to port whenever you want to yes. stop and get off. We <laughs> uh <laughs> The, like, I mean, I'm sure you've listened. This is very much, especially on our end, a pulling no punches when it comes to like, oh, I thought that was trash or like whatever. So it's going to be great. Regardless, also, it's going to be fun. on that note of like being like trying to reconcile things that you really loved or still hold, a, yeah. you know, a place for in your heart, like even after looking at something or finding new context for like maybe some of the methods that were used during uh, production or some of the things that like you know the story is saying underneath it all like I mean something could be trash and you could still like it you know like that's that's kind of like where what we're trying to find out is like like you like what is that line and we have to face that you know so 
I'm so stoked to get into this. Should we just do it? Yeah, let's okay, let's cool. jump in. Amidst a cavalcade of monetary romances, Max Bialystok is schmoozing and smooching his way through New York's 60 over 60 to help fund his next big Broadway smash that may or may not get made. In walks accountant and general do-gooder Leopold Leo Bloom, who informs Max that his last show cost less than the money invested and that if he were to hypothetically commit the same act of fraudulence on a much larger scale, they could be millionaires faster than a 15-minute intermission. The plan is set. They'll find the worst show in history to be produced by the worst director in town as they promise investors it'll be the smash hit of the season, and when it inevitably fails, they'll be rich. What's the worst show in history, you may ask? How about a dramatic pro-Nazi propaganda piece that deifies Adolf Hitler? <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Who's the worst director in town? No one other than Roger Debris, the town-renowned failure whose big air quotes, sassy and fruitful direction is as lousy as his limp wrists. They hire the actors, stage the play, hire a sex object, I mean a Swedish assistant, and it's opening night. Just as the audience's appalled thresholds are reached, a big air quotes eccentric and peculiar Adolf Hitler steps into the stage and has the audience in his stitches. The play is a hit. Now, since they can't pay back the 1,000% investment to the stakeholders, it's off to jail they go. They stage a musical with inmates at the state penitentiary and hatch an equally lascivious scheme with the prisoners but at the end of the day that's showbiz baby Ooh, lascivious is the volcano that killed pompeii right yes 100 percent. see i did learn something (laughs) you guys are so smart i was like this fucking big ass word i stumbled i stumbled over that shit okay i i love the word lascivious just because it's like kind of snaky and like like a little bit gross and like ooh lascivious. Like it's kind it's also of just pretentious as fuck. Yes, thank you so much. I really, I hundred percent. I love it. But it's, it's such... the kind of word that sounds the way you feel when you say it. Yes, lascivious. Oh, is... It feel you feel it as you say it, even if you I have fe- no idea what it means. You feel it in your bones, absolutely. Um. Okay, let's just fucking rage. Jump in. So, off the bat, on my end. I'm going to just full full say uh, I didn't like this one um, just as a blanket statement. And I, I think the pacing was a little bit rough for me just because I feel like it like kind of languished a little bit in a lot of ways. I don't know. But this is also, again, I'm coming from a place where like I'm not completely familiar with the Mel Brooks sensibility. And I know that this is obviously like one of his staples just as far as like the sort of slapstick humor, the the sort of the heightened hysterics of like comedy that obviously Gene Wilde is a master of um, and portrays in most of the things that he's been in. And that has a lot to do with Mel Brooks's comedy. Um, but even within that, I still, for some reason, really struggled. <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys think? Personally, I also kind of felt the same way. I do think that I had seen this at some point, but like I enjoy Mel Brooks. I love Gene Wilder. But to me, it took me a minute to get into it just because it was just fucking straight in and there wasn't a lot of context, especially where the next one they do. uh, I feel like it did a little bit of a better job of setting up the world before just jumping in. But um, yeah, it took me a minute. And I think one of my issues was with Gene Wilder and how I felt like they were trying to make 
his character have like some sort of OCD or some sort of mental health issue. Oh. And for me as a person that has OCD, you know, like he's like, oh, compulsion, compulsion, oh, he needs the blanket and stuff. And I'm like, I, I was kind of turned off by that, you know, like at least in those moments when they leaned on that for comedy because it was always in comedy and it was never necessarily something that played throughout the whole film right it was just only in that in those moments as a joke as like an easy return you know so for me that was a little bit rough yeah to piggyback on that a little bit i agree i think because because tonally i i feel like i want to talk i want to compare it to like the the musical version a little bit just in terms of like joke punch up because in the first one i i do know that like a lot of those hysterics obviously like were a little bit messy and problematic uh, just in terms of like, oh, it's funny that he's having a panic attack or like people who stress and panic shouldn't be taken seriously. That's kind of like the joke. Like, oh, this is hilarious because it's not real. But it, or they're it, lesser you know I mean? than, they're you less, know, because yeah, he know? is being taken advantage of by Max, right? Uh, yeah. And I feel like a lot of the humor relied, well, not all of it, but like some of it in these specific moments, like with the blanket or with the I'm hysterical or the you're fat, 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 so big, fat, wet, fat, fatty, whatever. Like, I'm like, Okay, sure, but, like, is the joke he's having a panic attack and is also, like, fat... Like, I just don't really understand the context within that. Whereas in the other one, they still had those moments, which, again, is basing it on the initial work. But I felt like there was a lot more, like, really intelligent punch-up jokes in there that, like, the first one just didn't really have. Like, I felt like it really just emphasized fucking solid solid jokes in the in the other one but this one i felt like it was it was kind of empty with those well i just think it's funny too it's interesting because i think i so i saw the musical movie first then i went back and watched the original because i had already enjoyed so much of mel brooks's work and gene wilder's work specifically too um so i went back and rewatched it so i watched it through the lens of seeing the musical and then having to see this as like the original work and so i think that I enjoyed it for it being different. I enjoyed mm-hmm. that. And, and I love I love a good overture. I love <laughs> yeah. credits before the movie begins or in that, that, that cut, like the cutting. This is, you know, 67. This is Mel Brooks's first direct. This is a directorial debut. So this is actually oh, yeah, his okay. the first in those movies. So he's really still finding his voice. But what I think so if I, I kind of approach it as a fan of Mel Brooks, where I'm like, this is an interesting look at, kind of where he started you can kind of see what sticks through his movies as he progresses and what sort of things kind of got worse or better so yeah it is intriguing rewatching it in this context too because i i do think it's it's sort of i don't know I, I feel like taking into account the time period yeah and knowing some of his other works it was easier for me to like i don't know not explain away but like understanding oh well you know Mel Brooks is into showing into visual, like having a visual representative of these things. And even if it's like, but what is that? Who's who I always go back to. Who's the, like, who's it making fun of or who is the, who's the joke at like the punchline? Yeah. Who is the punchline? Mm-hmm. And those are the pieces that can be problematic sometimes, but it's, it's difficult with Mel Brooks's work because it's like, he takes similarly like to the South Park kind of vibe, which is, I don't entirely enjoy that humor, but like we just make fun of everybody equally and we just kind of make fun of the situations and all those things. And so there are moments that I enjoy that Mel Brooks did. Like he has a lot of firsts as a director with yeah. like bringing things to film for the first time or pushing those boundaries. But it's like, sometimes is it for who's the humor at the expense of? 
yeah, mm-hmm. that's honestly you saying it has a very sort of South Park sensibility in that it's we're making fun of literally everything. It's equal opportunity offense. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of vibe. That's the presentation. That's the platform. But with that, like that approach to me is so. And, and I mean, again, it like this was what, 60 years ago at this point um, or 50 years ago, oh rather my God. Uh, <laughs> in that wild, I guess is a 50 year old film. Um, with that in mind, though, like. Maybe it's just because of where I am at in time and space and and like my age and how I've grown up and what I've seen. It seems like these the like the easiest approach to comedy to to not have any opinion at all. And that I think that was like one of the biggest off-putting things because to me I also understand Mel Brooks's background as a Jewish person and so there is sort of like the acknowledgement of like ridiculing Nazism and sort of that kind of big level bigotry especially at the time in the 60s when the war wasn't that old like i mean relatively speaking but it was still pretty pretty recent pretty fresh um but it's it's like i felt like in this specifically with that the only way to get rid of the facade or not necessarily the facade but like the bigness of evil that was that time period is to punch down at queer people <laughs> like let's let's make the nazis look bad by making them worse which is making them gay <laughs> and you're like oh well, okay well like the only thing worse than being a nazi i guess is being femme i don't understand you know what i mean that was like one of the bigger concerns i had with even and i will say i think the next one made it worse yes and, and, and like i think mm-hmm. that this one did a decent job at being like oh femme queer whatever but in the next one, they really heightened the, not only the gayness of it, but the, oh, and the gayness that it should be bad and should be perceived as badness. It was just heightened. They doubled down. They, 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 it got worse. <laughs> My note literally says, is it possible that the second is more problematic than the original? Like, and, and that's, that's honestly one of the things too, is I thought very similarly, this could be a little bit worse as far as its tone. I mean, granted, I thought it was more entertaining because of the songs. <laughs> but outside of that, 100%. That was yeah. my my big thing was the, like, what's worse than a Nazi? A queer. I was like, oh, fuck. Like, ugh. that's that's kind of the predicated comedy umbrella for the entire movie. While at the same time, like, kind of coding Max and Leo as queer themselves, right? Especially the end, like their little monologues for each other and stuff like that. And like, it's so it's so weird thinking about it because like, I I didn't have that context um, that you were talking about with Mel Brooks, um, where he, to me, okay, cool, let's let's pull back a little bit. Like, um, this Jewish director decides that these producers are going to make the worst thing in history for fun and as they're duping everybody, right? Which is a play reframing Hitler as fun and gay. But of course people love it because at first they're like, oh no, Hitler is bad, Hitler is bad. But then you change the narrative surrounding this awful, horrible, inhumane person and then suddenly it's fine and everybody loves it, you know? And to me, like, I just I just wrote this big fucking giant piece on Beauty and the Beast and how that reframes uh, chivalry and cyclical abuse and uh, male violence into something that you should want and that is good. And I feel like this kind of on a meta level is like 
hey, if you reframe something, people are going to like it, even though they shouldn't, you know, like what, yeah. like kind of what is your role in media? And if you think this is going to be reframed, of course, white, rich white people like Hitler, you know, of course, like, you know, when, when you yeah. take out like that badness, suddenly everything is doable and it's okay, you know, so like. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. There's a level of like, especially if that's the kind of the connotation or the approach they're going to take when it's like exemplifying this and kind of making a commentary on like, oh, well, this is just a general population and the gen that general population does hate queer people. And that's why this is funny. If that is the intended commentary or the intended voice, I do think there needs to be a bit more of like a foundation of this was intentional. This is this like we really did this thing, not like a couple gay jokes and then it's this and then it's like, well, see, that's just that's just the people. And it's like, well, it's not. You wrote that into the script. That's your choice. to You know what I mean? And they chose to write to do Hitler rather than cockroaches, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. like gay Hitler is worse than a cockroach, right? And yeah. then like within that too, it's like they're giving a voice to this story and this creator that is literally, they are empowering a literal neo-Nazi telling him <laughs> that they love his ideas and that the yes. people need to hear this, you know? Um, yeah. And to me, I'm just like, oh yeah, this is absolutely Hollywood. Like Joker, fuck off, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate the meta-ness of this narrative a lot, but yeah, um, it just, this it really does hate queer people. It, Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Cause I, so I, can I think about it too? And I don't know, I guess I have a, I don't know. I can't tell exactly why I maybe have a different point of view on that part of it or like understanding it. Cause like for me, when I was viewing it, when I see it, especially cause I had seen the musical version first and understanding the, the sort of like over the top campiness of Broadway and that sort of like some of those tropes of like what Broadway is or who it is for. Right. Like I, you know, it's definitely there's there's coding there, and and I guess I kind of saw it as as more campy, and I actually enjoyed the fact that with and like what and when I watched the original one versus after seeing the musical, I love that the they didn't just take Roger and throw him into the role of Hitler, the the you know the director right like yeah. which was definitely a problematic representation, but they made him a hippie like it, it, they took the, the <laughs> LSD like. Like making Hitler a hippie was like th the joke for all these folks. Yeah. And I can't tell if like part of it too, like when I was like watching it or when I was thinking about it in terms of like, what's the commentary here? Cause Mel Brooks is always there. There is subtext. And I, I feel like with some of his other works, not necessarily, I, I can't tell if it's like that equal opportunity offensive or if it's like, he is saying certain things and he's making fun of a lot of times like, like, like in blazing saddles and all that, like, Yes, it was problematic, and it's definitely there's a lot of aspects to it that are difficult. But like, who was the joke? Who were the fools? It was the racist white people, and and and, and whether or not that's like the okay version, I feel like here it's like look at all these affluent theater folk. We literally put the worst thing you could imagine onto a onto a stage, and they're eating it up because yeah. of you know whatever it is. And it's sort of like I don't know. It's just very hard for me sometimes to figure out the line of who where's the where's the joke at, or like who is the joke on, or is it on everybody? Like, is the whole world, like, the whole universe that it's created. I don't know. And, yeah. and see, that to me, I'm like, yes. If that if that is the way that you explained it, yes. If that's the context, I'm like, 100%. Give it to me. I love it. I love that commentary. I'm into it. But I think from a viewer's perspective, especially not really having much of that history, it didn't read that first time. And I wanted it to because I'm like, well, if that's the intent, then I totally get it. And I think that that's great. But, like, 
kind of coupling with these characters and seeing the way that like I, I don't know I guess it is kind of a commentary again on production and on like kind of selling your soul for literally anything and it's like mm-hmm. all schemes it's all scams it's all fake it's all it's all capitalist it, it's all capitalist like we'll do whatever the fuck we need to do to make this happen um and we have no stake in the game we have no ethos like that's just it's done we're done but i really i just i wish that it had more I mean, I guess I'm always on this podcast being like, it doesn't like too much exposition is bad, but not enough exposition is also bad. But I feel like in this case, maybe just a little bit more of like a, hey, hey, this is a commentary on consumption and on white consumption and on what sells and like, <laughs> like that's the joke. Cause it did, it, it felt messy because it wasn't specific. And I wonder that if part sense? of that is like what like we were talking about where it is kind of like a product of the times where like in this time you couldn't necessarily be as overt maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know, but like just having like an extra 5 minutes in the movie like setting that up at some point like you know and like sprinkled throughout like it could be a minute here and a minute here or whatever, you know, like that kind of stuff I think could have really elevated this on my first watch, you know what I mean? And as I'm Again, now looking through critically after like watching it for a lot of times just out of enjoyment and like also a part of like just growing up, Gene Wilder has been such a huge. And as a Jewish person, I, you know, it's like Mel Brooks. Like, I, I, I don't know. There's like a there's a point there. And I try to like my brain does sometimes go, you know, when I look at the intersections of all my identities. Right. And like where I where are my lines? Like, where am I? What am I OK with because of who that person is versus who am I? What am I not with? So yeah. it brings up a lot, but I will say at least like, it's sort of like my brain went to, well, there's not a whole lot of racial diversity in the film, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe that's better because there's not negative racial descript like the, the visual represent, like, like a, in a negative way for the time period of the six uh, in 1967, except yeah. for that on the jury at the end, there were two people of color. There wasn't a single person of color or a woman on the jury in the 2005 version. So it's like, did the, it got really, you know what I mean? Not to it, jump ahead, but it's very, I can, it's, a message, it's all over the place. It is all over the place, yeah. I think the racism was more directed at white people, right? It was directed at Germans and at um, the concierge oh. woman, like, who's, like, got the bad accent and is, like, racist and, like, I inherited this job with, like, her curlers and her hair and stuff like that. But I think it was more... Even those things weren't substantive enough to really... They were like one-liners or like the equivalent of one-liners for a punchline. You know what I mean? Mel Brooks is all about like caricatures too. And that's, I think, Mm -hmm. part of it is it's just the caricatures of different people and different things. And this one, I think, is really like mostly joking about New York. And like Mm -hmm. the... Like in that sort of... Like like New York and and theater. The theater industry and the business and... I I really it's hard for me to like think about it in that time period as much like other than just Mel Brooks is hard. It's just a hard one for me to read and I've never had to think about it critically. I, I really wish that I could I want to do more research on what that was like critically. Like I don't think this movie went over well critically. I re- looked at I saw that but it did end up having a cult following and then kind of came back. But what was his what were people viewing or his thoughts? Was he like seen as a director in this time period for like the thing the stories that he was telling or the people that he was showing on in these things was he seen as being out there for the time period and like pushing the boundaries then i don't know these characters all felt like caricatures like there wasn't a lot of substance to them maybe other than 
maybe some substance to Max and Leo. Um, but other than that, I mean, everybody was just a one-liner. You know, you have you have Ula, who literally... Okay, I... <laughs> so the thing about Ula in this one, right? I mean, girl knows what she's after. She's after money, and she's down to fuck to get it, right? Yeah. So, like, part of me was like, hell yeah, girl, fucking get that, right? Because she's like oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, and she, but at the same time, she just like, she was never a person or never anything in this. Like, you know, she's just like, oh, you want to fuck? We're going to go to the hotel. Like, okay, cool. But like, then like the, my favorite image of Ula is like her with the fucking typewriter and with the bottle of champagne on ice typing one letter a minute while she's fucking sipping. I'm like, I'm obsessed with that. And I love that. But I just wish she didn't have to fuck anybody. Like, fuck that gross old man. Yeah, Yeah. I think I just struggle because, yes, there is a sort of a commentary on, like, autonomy. And, like, obviously she's capable in this capacity, at least in this one, way less so, I think, than the Uma Thurman performance in the next one. But I know the joke is supposed to be boy dumb, girl hot, I want sex. Like, that's Mm -hmm. kind of, like, just base level that's like the she's doing the fossey her boobs like that's the whole bit like that's the vibe but is it a joke like i know it's supposed to be like humorous 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 humorish um humorish humorish yeah you know and that and that to me i'm just like i don't i don't necessarily understand her rolling this apart from again just the clear and very specific objectification of her character that's why she's there She's like, we're rich now. We're going to be rich. Let's like buy this lady as a sex sex object and to just stare mm-hmm. at like gorgeous. That's why we're doing it. But then there wasn't really much like, like there's, there isn't really a turn on that at all. It's mm-hmm. just kind of, it just, it's very stasis. It stays exactly where it was introduced. And that's the end of the story for her character. Where in my head, I was like really hoping that like the commentary would be at the end of it when they don't get the money, her accent disappears. She's like, well, fuck this. I'm out. Like, bye. <laughs> like, something, right? Gorgeous. Like, some that sort would of be justice. <laughs> there, it, would, it would be so fun to be like, oh, yeah. Like, we, we assumed she was, like, capable and obviously, like, get yours. You're doing, you're doing it. Go for it. But then having, like, a very finite, like, oh, yeah, 100%. This is a movie about schemes. She's playing them like they're playing the system. Like, exactly. gorgeous. You know what I mean? I mean, and again, I'm not trying to be here being like trying to punch up a Mel Brooks script. You know what I mean? Like, as I don't, I don't want to come and just be like, actually, if I was in the room, like a lot would have changed. Like, I think that's very silly. Sorry, very silly. <laughs> but it just felt like there wasn't a payoff with a lot of it. And her character specifically, because it felt like there was some intended commentary, but we never really were explicitly told like, hey, yeah, that's what we were trying to say with this. It was kind of like, maybe... I think that's that's exactly the problem that we were talking about earlier where there was this hint of this is what this is supposed to be and this is what this character is supposed to represent but there wasn't that like extra minute of screen time that we needed to like fully make that come around so instead there is just like a lot of ideas that are kind of like loose threads and you really have to watch this with a critical eye to get like you know the actual commentary that is happening in this you know which again like uh jay was saying this could have been that could have been because this is his first piece you know all of that yeah but like 
the women in this, like, uh, specifically, like, just no matter what fucking age, were just incredibly sexualized. So, like, you know, I, I love the cyclical conning. I love that the young con the middle-aged, who con the old, who know that they're being conned and don't care because they just want to get fucked. You know, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm good with that, right? But, like, women are, like, objectified to the point to where, you know... Other than Ula, they don't even have names, right? Literally, like, the names of these women in both this film and the remake is uh, Hold Me, Touch Me. And, like, it's it's literally, like, the actions. So, like, they're objectified in a way that is directly related to sexual relations, you know? So, like, this is exactly what they are. But I also liked that all of those old women beat the shit out of him or like just like <laughs> fucking took it they're like look you're gonna get my money like oh you fucking sissy <laughs> like you know they're like yeah. demasculating yeah. him at every point and like not giving him an inch so like and you know even at the end like they have that like they're like yeah no we know what this is it's fine you know yeah um so and i liked that because then like you know that felt less scummy to me and it felt like those women still had agency in that choice you know that as an opening scene, I was so taken, obsessed. That op- that like first, like the picture, he's like, okay, which one is she? Perfect. Because again, like you said, agency and autonomy played the biggest role in that where he's getting something, she's getting something. It is a mutual interaction. We know what's happening. And that was explicitly said at the end, right? Yeah. Like that, like just that one line of like, you know, them being like, yeah, we know what this is. It's fine. Like he didn't, tur- he didn't fuck us over, right? So... If we had, like, just a line like that with those other loose threads, gorgeous. Yeah. And and that is, like, I, I didn't realize, like, I didn't realize some of those moments. And, and it kind of, after hearing both of you speak on it, too, it makes sense to me that I, I feel this way with a lot of his films. He will just present something. And you have these moments of, like, yeah, that's kind of cool. But then there's <laughs> no commentary. And there's no actual, and there's so much space for you to put in your own thing and that's the problematic piece of it it's sort of like hey like like Malin Khan in Blazing Saddles when she's like t- like kicking that cowboy off the stage and like punching him over and like performing to them <laughs> in like a you know in this wild west like sort of vibe she's like out of agency but then it's just like at the end of the day it's just like uh she's still just a sex object she's or she's just objectified Ula mm-hmm. was he was like he took a wad of cash Max took a wad of cash and said I'm gonna go buy a toy I've done a lot of work. I fucked a lot of ladies and I yes. want to buy a toy. And then Ula is there. And you're like, oh, so, and that is almost, I feel like before we jump to the new one, that's somewhat consistent in amongst his representation of women. And I will say that, that his representation of women in this story in particular are very problematic. Um, and it's definitely uh, all just male gaze and objectification. Literally you saying that, like you said it best, literally like that idea of, of like starting the paragraph and then not finishing it, it's kind of just like, well, that, and to me, again, commenting back on, like, this idea of, like, well, anything's fair game, equal opportunity jokes, that being the, like, kind of like the laziest and safest unfunny choice, in the same way, starting the conversation, but then never actually telling us where you stand in this really kind of trashy, centrist perspective is kind of like, okay, well, like, what, you said nothing, nothing's happened, like, you, we, we know you're capable of commentary. We know you're capable. It's in the script. Like, it's in the work. You've already done it on certain things. But then not completing that idea with all of these. Because, again, you're bringing up some interesting topics. You're bringing up some interesting ideas. 
but not giving the same sort of credibility or or like leeway to those ideas in the way that you've done with this other one makes it seem like you're on the side of the bad thing and not the 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 critical good thing like it seems like you're you're really choosing the side of the bad when you don't conclude it when you don't give us your stance on it you know yeah i think the most enjoyable thing for me and why what gets me going back to these movies is is just seeing the incredible performances from these like such amazing actors like zero mustel and gene wilder and and then it bugs me because i'm like what am i overlooking or what am i giving into like but i'm able to just enjoy like those pieces and what they bring to it um and i love the fact that the movie started like 12 minutes 15 minutes in just the office just that just max's office and and i kind of enjoy it's like as far as like from a filmmaking perspective i i just enjoy that timing i enjoy the the comedic timing of let's put these two amazing actors in a room together and just like watch them do their thing and that is what i feel like i get really enjoyable things and then obviously like the little punch like like little punch jokes like yeah they're funny like the the hippie band like when lsd's doing his audition and like the three women are playing the instruments, but there's no saxophone in the song that's playing, but there's a saxophone, you know what I mean? Like, like Also, the song just being like, about, like, cyclical capitalism and how everybody sucks, like, that is what you're trying to say with this movie. This is what you're trying to say. Finish your fucking paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, finish the thought. Like, you started it. Come on, tell us. It's right there. It. It's right there. Ooh. I will, I do want to say, like, on my end, the first 15 to 20 minutes felt like a stage play. Like, very much where you're like, this is it. You're introducing the characters. You're introducing the problem. They are in one room. They're moving around. Literally every space is filled with action and with a choice. And like, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing like the stage play. But I think without, and again, with no baggage, no like history with this, I understood what they were doing, but it, it kind of was a snooze. Like that first segment was kind of a snoozer for me just for that reason where I was like, I loved it when like we're seeing the office, he opens the cabinet. He's like, okay, wait, uh, hug me, kiss me. Okay, that's her. And then it like cuts to his face, and it's like that like '60s cool like montage Austin Powersy close up. And you're like, oh, I'm loving this. Yes. And then she's like sitting on his lap and be like, you're you're the driver, and I'm just whatever. What game are we like? <laughs> yes. But then as soon as that whole segment was over, and Gene Wilder came into the office, I felt like it like lost so much momentum. Mm-hmm. You know what that. I mean? I do. Now that you've opened the door. Here's the first Jay Levy nugget that I thought was funny about this. Hell yeah. Yeah. The the sex game that they're playing is the chauffeur named Rudolfo. She calls him Rudolfo. When he gets the money and he buys his car, he says, thank you, Rudolfo. His chauffeur is actually named Rudolfo. Just a little. (laughs) And so, like, I don't know. I like the little callbacks. I like the little things. But that's where my brain goes to is I kind of focus on those aspects of it. So, when it's slow and but that's just my style i found as i've gotten you know as i've gotten older and i start to look more like gene wilder which y'all can see in the zoom with the <laughs> curly hair and the, like it's just i feel like that's the way that i'm aging currently um is my pa- i've been really enjoying that sort of very slow pacing like subtle humor like i'm not going for big laughs and so i because it's a, it's just such a different pace about what I view as like going on. Oh gosh, I'm not gonna get in, I'm not gonna get on the whole like all the world t- stuff. But but when the world is coming so fast and like people are directly acting into phones and all these things, like it's just a lot for me to engage with. It's it's 
it's been so I've gotten I deleted my social stuff. I have the Instagram that I use it for the music, like because I feel like it's really important for to do for music. But even then, like I just have pushed all that away and been revisiting and just enjoying this very slow paced little subtle things because it's just where my brain can process currently. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's why I maybe enjoy this more. I do want to uh, call, well, I want to talk about patriarchy and men and Max and uh, Leo for sure. But first before, as like a cute little segue, can we talk about how cute that ascot was that he had in prison where- Oh yeah. um, they didn't learn anything. They're still pulling the same con in prison, enabled by the warden and stuff. Like, okay, whatever. But I really enjoyed that little um, ascot that matched uh, the uh, the striped jumpsuit. I had to bring that up. I don't know why, but um, I was like, no, Fuck I mean you, it's a, it's. But I love it, this. <laughs> it's a cute it's a cute look, and it also sort of lends some credence to the idea of like the homoeroticism of their friendship. Thank just, you. Because it really, like, again, I, I forget who said this earlier, but just, like, they really kind of teetered that line as, like, you're seeing this friendship develop into something that is, like, romantic, question mark? Like, are they kind of falling in love with each other through this scheme? Like, especially especially the um the Gene Wilder character where he's, like, Leo, he's very much just, like, oh, I could I could never do this. And then he, like, gets a taste of the badness and is, like, I want this. And is that is that, like kind of coming out a little bit but again it's it again nothing's nothing specific and nothing's explicit in that well, way but ascots are very gay <laughs> <laughs> and and they're in jail in this in this moment so there's like a there's like sort of an embracing like well what else am i to do i'm here so like ex- embrace ex- it but again it's never like, it's never commented on but it's in- hinted at also, being a, a man in patriarchy is being lazy, getting all the money for doing nothing, and having women that are just there, right? Uh, like, all that felt like a big-ass cover-up to me. Well, because I also wonder if, just in general, just based on how we exist and misogyny and patriarchy in general, because there is a very definitive structure, especially for, like, cishet men, this idea that, like, you cannot even be platonically intimate with your male friends like it's it's you can't touch or hug or cry or emote or anything because then like you're gay like that's the vibe like you can't do anything so like maybe it's just because me seeing society as it stands now under this sort of misogynistic patriarchy if because i'm starved for that kind of representation of like platonic male love to some degree without it sort of being pushed into the queer territory but I think in this case, like, it really was. Because, again, the language, the gay coding, whatever. But you can't have that without, like, teetering into queer territory. But at the end of the day, I feel like everything's queer. Just in terms of, like, everything's a spectrum. Nothing's finite. Nothing's, like, absolute. Everything's constantly changing. And that's the beauty of, like, being people is we're learning and growing and changing constantly. In our best version of ourselves. we're going to be better tomorrow than we were today. Hopefully. Ideally, right? And it's interesting how, like, I, I really enjoyed that scene at the fountain when he's like, I don't know what I'm feeling. Or no, then they're in the lake and they're on the rowboat, right? I don't know what I'm feeling. It's happiness. And it's sort of like you have at that moment, you're like, okay, is Max bringing out the worst parts of Leo and Leo bringing out good parts in Max? And then they both kind of counter by going the other way. So, like, you know, like, like it's sort of like, oh, they know that their parts of them are changing. So they kind of reverse to another direction to sort of like counteract that like they're constantly characters in in flux 
Well, and then like you were saying, like where uh, where it's like this, like it's a lot of punching down at queer people and at at gay gay men specifically, right? So when it's the whole movie, they're kind of okay and they're kind of you know they're like you said they're meeting each other halfway and they're just kind of floating above water, right? And and they have this facade, and then only when they embrace each other and what they mean to each other do they then get um, persecuted and locked up, right? Like, only then, when they fully embrace that, are they labeled as bad. And then they go to jail. (laughs) Yeah. I did really enjoy um, just how fucking over-the-top Max was with everything. Because, okay, I felt like Gene Wilder was very high this whole time. But anyway, so, like, so Max is just fucking over the top right you know and again going with the queer coding of these characters fucking over the top and like he he has this like idea of he kind of lives in like fake elegance right and he's just like everybody does everything for me i deserve all of this money it's not cheating it's charity right you know like i deserve all of the things oh please 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 do this for me um i'm gonna take a nap right like he wants everything with doing the least work and working on other people and seeing everybody beneath him and like he like through like this act of like self-victimization where he's always like well, do you know who I used to be? Do you know what I used to be, right? And he's like, well, I have a cardboard belt now. I have this. And it's like, okay, but like you're literally trying to get everybody else to do everything for you and not actually doing anything. Um, But I loved like when he, like some of the moments where he'd get really pissed off and yell. There's one part part where he um, just screams like double, 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 like, you know, like, everything that you say but back at you yeah no but a hundred times more (laughs) and i was just like this is great and then like when he like throws the clothes is it him that like throws the clothes in the fridge oh no he does the coffee on the window he throws the coffee on the window oh i gotta clean this and then um one of the greatest lines i think is when he calls an account the accountant uh when he calls leo a fish-faced enemy of the people i was just like oh my (laughs) god this is great um that was it is, and there's those little moments throughout the whole thing like like the fact that the like, wine in the pocket the, the the wine in the pocket fucking like was so i was like wait what's happening <gasps> oh i got this i got this that yeah. was very fun the slapsticky yeah. elements to it and it's sort of like i don't know if it i don't know why but I'm like just watching him rip his belt into pieces i i, <laughs> I just and then break down in tears like i've been there i get it um i do have a a question if this movie took place like today would they have found this script on reddit like would they have like you know like like i i uh sometimes i like to think about like what would change or where would they find these people like because you know it would be some it would be some racist on twitter who like links his squarespace or something where he's like whatever like it, uh, maybe a maybe a, a tweet went viral or something, and it was bad. And it was like, "Wow, fuck this person! Like they fucking suck." And then they're like, "Yes, get that person to write it." They have the verified right. blue check mark next to their yeah. ta- their handle, so you know there's le- it's legit. I'd be curious too because it's almost like if you tried to find the worst script, find the worst director, hire the worst people to play the roles, but it becomes this good thing in a way, right? Like. It's sort of like, what if you if you were to try to find the worst thing? If you were trying to put something out that would just be absolutely terrible, if you were trying to exist now with this, it's hard to find or figure out what you would even 
do it about because there's we're, there's so much people are so um it's very device like on album I mean, things that are divisive people get so, yeah. stoked about bad things you know intentionally well, like, making bad things so it's would, like what would, is badness would a modern day version of this just be a room situation you know what i mean <laughs> exactly like yeah. it would be it would be this performed like kind of ironically bad and we know it's bad but that's why we like it type hmm. deal mm-hmm. who knows <laughs> um i don't really have a lot to say about the rest of this i'm yeah i'm one of the next one if y'all i'm are. honestly excited yeah. to talk about the next one Same Let, let's do it Amidst the cavalcade of monetary romances, Max Bialystok is a schmoozing and smooching his way through New York's 60 over 60 to help fund his next big Broadway smash that may or may not get made. And walks an accountant and general do-gooder Leopold Leo Bloom, who informs Max that his last show cost less than the money invested and that if he were to hypothetically commit the same act of fraudulence on a much larger scale, they could be millionaires faster than a 15-minute intermission. The plan is set. They'll find the worst show in history to be produced by the worst director in town as they promise investors it'll be the smash hit of the season. And when it inevitably fails, they'll fly to Rio. What's the worst show in history, you might ask? How about a problematic pro-Nazi propaganda piece that deifies Adolf Hitler? Yikes. Who's the worst director in town? No one other than Roger Debris, the town-renowned failure whose, big air quotes, sassy and fruitful direction is as lousy as his limp wrists. They hire the actors, stage the play, and hire a sex object, I mean Swedish assistant, and it's opening night. Just as the audience's appalled thresholds are reached, a big ol' air quotes eccentric and peculiar Adolf Hitler steps onto the stage and has the audience in stitches. The play is a hit. Now, since they can't pay back the 1,000% investment to the shareholders, it's off to jail they go. They stage a musical with the inmates at the state penitentiary and hatch an equally lascivious scheme with the prisoners. But at the end of the day, that's showbiz, baby. And this time it's a musical. It's a musical. The songs. Oh, all right. Yeah, I got lots of things. I want to okay, just start. Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane, Nathan Lane, Nathan Lane. Um, l- Literally, like, all of my good positive notes are just, like, anything he's done, yes. The whole, like, hold me, touch me, pinch me, lick me, suck me, f- uh, and then he, like, oh. grabs his thing. Amazing. Yeah. Love it. Mm. The slapstick is perfect. He's literally perfect at everything. Could do no wrong. Uh, when they're at the fountain and he's like, he says the line, don't you realize there's a lot more to you than there is to you? And then he looks off camera and mouths, mouths, and mouths the word, what the fuck? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like he's, he's like, how is he buying this? This is so fake. I'm scheming him. He's a scam. Like this is yep. all fucking fake. I l- obsessed Roger Bart. Also, I'm obsessed with Roger Bart. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. I could not like when he's like, oh, he's having a stroke of genius. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just amazing, amazing and fun and whimsy and just because again, like you said about this one previously, this is camp. This is just like heightened silliness, cartoon buffoonery is all that's displaying here, and it's it's done in such a fun way. I, I I mean, I do think we'll get into it. I do think it doubles down on some of the problematic aspects, but in general, all of these little bits were so fucking fun. Like the fucking tap number with the walkers. Are you kidding me? So funny. That's genius. That's amazing. That's hilarious. Like that's literally perfect where he's walking down the street and they're all coming out of the apartment in like a row and they're just following him. And he's like, yes. Ooh, it's just like, of course, 
a fucking chorus. Like that was so good. Okay. That's what I wanted to well, say. <laughs> there, it's it's a great it's a great musical. If you're a fan of musicals, you're a fan of theater. It is it's just really well done. I mean, it won 12 out of the 15 Tonys it was nominated for. Um, it was definitely it hits a lot of the notes that make some of those some Broadway productions very popular. And I think when the movie came out, the, the claim for the movie the or the critique of the movie was that it was just a filming of a theater production and they could have done more. It was like you were it was like it was very overacted in some moments, but that's what theater is. And that's why, like when those negative reviews I was reading, I was like, well, uh, they were making a movie of the musical. So I, I enjoyed the fact that you could see how there were so many elements and they used so many of the same folks from the original music the production on Broadway. Like Susan Stroman directed and Susan Stroman did the choreography and, and directed the musical. Um, so like there was a lot being able to see some of these, some same, some of the same set pieces, I think too. And obviously Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick in, in uh, Gary Beach and Roger Bart were all in that original cast. So getting to see them doing those roles. And I feel like it's more accessible as a film when universal makes it as a film, it's way more accessible than being able to get to go to Broadway to see it with that mm -hmm. casting. Or then when yeah. you see the tours, it's automatically slightly a little bit different. Like the, they change certain writings to make it more, make more sense for the road and it's not being able to experience it the same way. Um, but yeah, it's sort of like seeing, especially after rewatching the first one right before it. Um, and I, cause I marathoned them. I <laughs> was like, why there's still some things that never got fixed. Like you had sit from 67 to 2005 to, or 2002 when it was produced to still make some changes and like not making changes on those, but the other things that you did do differently. It's like, what are you saying here? Well, cause the like, choices were very strange. Yeah. Like my thing is they made it more gay and obviously it was like more okay to be gay or queer in 04, 05, right? Like in general, obviously like still kind of not, but like more so than the 60s, I'd say. Um, so obviously it's like, yes, we're going to make it more gay and bigger and gayer and yes, but we're still going to make the heightened gayness be sort of the antithesis to literal Nazism. Like the only thing worse than being a Nazi is being gay. And I and mean, high, I mean, high femme. I mean, the, the gayest gay 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 and gay, make gay. the connection <laughs> with uh adolf hitler's middle name being elizabeth directly to like mm. elizabeth i was like okay like we it's... we talk about context we talk about like you know like stringing these things together and payoff and the payoff for that is that gays are as bad as hitler yes <laughs> and that and that's i think i mean come on like make a commentary on it like do it in the same way like yeah bring it up like if it's there's nothing off topic sure yeah we're talking about Nazis. We're talking about gays. Cool. But then it's, it's, it is very much the only reason the gay is there is to make sure that like, ha ha ha, gay Hitler. The only reason that he's worse now and laughable is because he sucks dick. <laughs> Great. So like, that's so fun for us. Like, I, you know what I mean? And it was, it was way more apparent here than it was in the first one. And that was a struggle because a lot of this movie I really loved, like, the comedic timing of it was great. The bits were great. It was just like even another Nathan Lane bit that I didn't talk about is in the courtroom scene when he's having his lament, when he walks to the window and just opens the door and leaves the courtroom and they leave it ringing on that little high note in the orchestra, just like keep it going for like maybe 20 seconds. And then he's walked back in at gunpoint. Hilarious. Fucking phenomenal. That's so funny. You know, like, 
very smart, very good bits were here. But then there's other there's other parts that I was just like, ugh, God. And I get like the whole village people thing, but I'm like, we really don't need like native garb like being expressed as sort of like a gay prop just because of its affiliation to the village people like eh, I, I get it's 2004 but like fuck off like come on like we really we just don't we don't need it well and like i mean since you brought that up like the only people of color that we see are the shitty boss who's the certified public asshole right which i laughed uh, very hard at uh at that reframing of cpa but um and he's like trying to grind leo into the ground by like you know like you've already had your toilet break do i smell self-esteem right and then basically the only other people of color that we really see are in the prison at the very end you know yeah Um, it's still very fucking white yes yes which and it's just it was sort of like like, like I, yeah, like I said, like, in, like the jury in the courtroom scene of, of the first one in 67 had two people of color. And I believe a woman of color was on there, too. But this was like gentlemen of the jury. And it's just all white dudes. And you're like, so this part doesn't change. But like you'll you'll expand Ula's character out a little bit. But still, like women are mainly the punchline. And, and the yeah. one consistent thing between these two is that women, it's it's definitely women are the punchline. There's not any. But it is interesting to see that. Oh, absolutely. You know. Like, and at least in the other one, like, women are worse off in this one um, because, like, all of the little old ladies, literally none of them have any agency because they are all dressed the exact same. They have the exact same haircut. They have, like, they all have the walker. They all, they're all this one monolith, right? And then most of the other women that we see are, you know, part of, like, the chorus line, right? Uh, And they are all dressed the same and all objectified the same, except for the one redhead who, like, I'm just like, wait, why, what are you trying to say here with this part? Like, I don't, get that like to me i think just basing it on what jay was saying earlier about like it being a commentary on the industry in this fantasy of like him being a producer it's like the no ugly girls trope yes and i hate right, that for, yeah. for, for him which i like i like that they're like oh yeah he's a bad guy he's scheming and also this guy who works in the industry and has pull even in his imaginations he's like you're ugly get away from me i don't want okay. to physically have sex with you so move Yes. Okay. Can we talk about how big incel energy Leo has in this movie? (laughs) Because, okay, um, Mm -hmm. he, like, the whole time he's, like, uh, they double down on, like, the OCD or, like, you know, anxiety, mental health uh, bullshit, right? So, like, okay, fine. At least it's, uh, I mean, it's not just used in that moment. It's kind of strewn throughout the narrative. Okay, whatever. But literally, there's a moment where he talks about how he cut women out of his life because they were taking him in the wrong direction and, like, setting up women as this dangerous, like, temptress, you know. And, like, he also won't get married. I'm sorry, he won't fuck without getting married. So, like, at the end, Ula has to marry him in order to get her 11 o'clock sex, right? (laughs) Which is, like cute okay but like he's he's that much of a fucking incel that he like is like he wants uh he wants money he wants power he wants women but he doesn't want to do the work to get any of them but he also deserves all of them um he's um 
because like he's like I'm better than everybody I deserve all of this I want everything I've seen in the movies and in the same breath says I'm a loser I'm a coward um I can't woo women I'd have an attack if any woman were after me you know but he wants to fuck all of the women on the chorus line you know so I'm just like to me I was just like big incel energy over here oh for sure yeah especially in that number that musical number when it's supposed to be like a cute like romance between him and Uma Thurman there and, and that. And then it builds and builds and builds. And then they, but the, some of the lines in that were like super problematic as I'm, I'm listening to it, like, just like you said. And then I also thought like the little icing on the cake of that one, which is like, Oh, was that as soon as like they start kissing, it just pans down and he, his little blue blanket that he needed, right. Is in the trash. Like, Oh, I mm-hmm. have her now. And so now exactly. it's gone. And it's like that prop of like, okay, women are the, pro- or like the sort, you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's, it's literal, literal, literal objectification. Yeah. Like yeah. she yeah. is now my object. I don't need this object anymore. And it's sen- sentiment. I need her or rather this thing, this thing, not a person and it's sentiment. Well, and, and also like, um, you know, it, it's worth noting too, that the, the blue blanket, it was, it was blue. They make a point to say the blue blanket, like a hell of times. Right. And then every woman in this movie is like, except for when they're not wearing anything and they're just wearing the pearls. Right. But they all wear blue. The old ladies, their outfit is blue because they are, uh, are their safety net and the comfort for, um, for Max, right? The same thing with Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman, in that specific scene, right, she's wearing blue. And even using that color to further the objectification of not just, um, not just Ula, but all women in this, right? You know, my safety blanket is blue. I don't need this anymore because I have a woman. And the lighting cue, right when that song starts in that white office, goes blue, the, the blue lights, which I was like thinking is beautiful. But then at the same time, I'm like, I just now realize sort of like all the connections pieces to this. Like, yeah, that is, I didn't get that this one. I didn't get that <laughs> in the front watching of it. But it doesn't make me feel any better about how women yeah. were portrayed because it's sort of, and, and, and like we talked about before, right? You, you, where do you leave space for people to not, like you say something to a point, but where do you leave that space? Sort of like you didn't just do the thing where like max is like i have money i'm gonna go buy a toy and then bring ula in you you kind of present you give her a bit of a backstory you give her more a lot more depth of character you kind of understand or learn a little bit more about her but then at the end of the day she is still just the object so it's like you've oh like we did a little bit more here you know we did a little bit oh yeah yeah it's like oh well she wants to be objectified right like her whole song and dance is oh god what is it it's like if you got it flaunt it so yeah. like cool, I'm Ooh. I'm I'm on board for that if this is what you want, great. But like literally that song is just there to make us feel better about her objectification, you know? And then yeah. also to make us to make her more desirable, they um have that cute line about like audiences really love a G string, right? And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. fine. And then like they have her talk about her schedule and there's like the double entendre of you should come at 11, you know, that's when Ula likes to have sex. And I'm like, yeah. okay, okay, yeah. we get it. We fucking get it, you know. Well, um, interesting <laughs> nugget too, like here's the second little nugget. In the first one, when Max is cleaning the window, he shouts, if you got it, flaunt it. But he's shouting exactly. it at the white car, not the woman coming out of it. And then in this one, it's in order to have that sort of connection to Ula, literally like Nathan Lane is shouting it at Ula directly and he's not even behind the window. He's outside on the balcony and waits for the car, the same car to pull up 
and then when she walks out so it's almost like it's more directed so it's sort of like did this get a little bit more problematic or like yes you know what i mean but then yeah the other thing about that song and i don't know if this is like the me knowing more about mel brooks's humor and then the other the only other mel brooks musical that i had seen before this one would have to have been robin hood men in tights um mm-hmm. and sort of like the so get understanding his songwriting right it's almost like as a character or is when you got it flaunted Ula explaining to us that she knows what all of it is. She knows the industry and understands it and is gets it. And so she's explaining it like, I'm just playing the game. I'm just playing the game to, to succeed. Um, and, but then and calling she leaves out at the end, right? But then she's like, oh, fuck all this. Let's, and she has that thing like, well, we could take the $2 million and go, right? So, okay, like, cool. She has like these little nuggets of agency, but then at the same time, like, if she wanted to be a star, this doesn't align with her goals, right? And this also, like, it didn't really... For me, I feel like they didn't know what her motivation was. It was just going to be what was presented and what was in front of her, you know? And I feel like a lot of her character was written so we felt better about her objectification. I do really like Uma Thurman, and I think that she did a great job in this role. I had a lot of fun watching... I had a lot of fun with this movie in general, but... I feel like everything was just written to be like, yeah, it's okay. Like, she's cool. For me, I, talking about camp and talking, I want to talk about, like, I kind of want to talk about queerness. And I want to talk kind of about, like, that sort of, the element of this and where it was, the lines, like, the where the over-the-top and the elements of it that were fun and, like, really interesting, like, again, of the Broadway sort of style. But, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm just really kind of curious about well, that I think, intersection. I, I think the big thing for me, like, with this version of it in particular is sort of like the whiteness of it in general and sort of the level of like sure you're queer sure you're gay but your whiteness is sort of the most present aspect of this and kind of commenting on the industry itself like who is broadway for who has access to broadway white people oftentimes fairly affluent white people because it's not cheap and traveling to new york is not cheap right um i mean it's the same and i don't know if we have to get into this but it's the same problems i had with hamilton (laughs) which is again yes it's a celebration of like people of color but at the end of the day the story is of a white person and of a white history being presented to white people uh through the lens of like this is progressive because they're black actors and it's like well these these aren't black stories they're white stories for white people so we're kind of just tokenizing again in this very same way like broadway does time and time again decade after decade after decade and we think in the producers it's very similar just in its its disregard for sort of commenting or acknowledging that kind of privilege in this way where it's like Mm. well i'm gay so it can't be bad like yes camp heighten gay get it i love but in the same turn it is the like femming of adolf hitler great like it it can it can be this bad thing and even when they when they have that like fantastic song where it's like i'm this person and i'm this person it's um debris they're in the house and he's mm-hmm. wearing the dress mm-hmm. and it's like that whole thing and again the village people stuff like there is a complete disregard for like what is acceptable because like oh we're queer and gay and we can just be playful but it's like sure embrace the silliness but at the same time your silliness doesn't preclude you from being trash or from being problematic or racist and i think that that's just like this this movie is really emblematic of that not only because it is 
just like the whitest fucking movie. <laughs> it is but, so white. But in that same way where it is like, and again, is this commenting on the whiteness of Broadway and the whiteness of the stage and New York showmanship in that way, whether it's play, whether it's musical, like, is this a commentary on that problem? I don't think so. Like, I think that this is just a product of it, not a commentary on it. A hundred percent. And and it's, it's sort of, again, like the same thing we talked about, which was like so annoying with the first one at moments was like, you're leading, you're like, the, there's the water. We see the thing, but we're not going to, we're you're just going to leave it there and let you make up your own parts of it. Or you can't tell if it's included, like, are we bringing it up because we are trying to make a commentary? Like the sort of like the lack of representation of people of color. It's almost like by the time I was starting to really realize it during the movie was during that bit, during the keep it gay scene. And then it's almost like all of a sudden the village people thing, which is like the reference to the reference to village people and like that silliness. Oh, well we're here. This is us. Like, but you're like, but is that good? Or, yeah, or exactly. No. Like, it was a problem then, it's a problem now, just because you, like, bring it back in a way that's, like, referential to, like, an early gay thing doesn't mean it doesn't have its problems or that it's that it's offensive or, or, or just messy. Like, like just bringing it, it's like, well, or actually talking about this history, it's like, yeah, but that history was once a present, and in that present, that thing was problematic, so you're bringing those elements with you. You're not expunging yourself of that just because you're gay and again it has everything to do with like intersectional feminism in that way or intersectionality at large where it's like you can be these things and still be bad like yeah. like the misogyny <laughs> there too like, yes that shirley markowitz was the joke the woman was the punchline of that scene because she was plain or like what they were coding her and so you're sort of like i don't know because like, it, it, well in 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 sort of queer misogyny in general like again, it's okay for these men to be high femme and like performative and and silly and 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 just femme in general. But as soon as like this uh, assumedly cis woman presents masculine, then it's funny. Then it's a joke. Then it's the bottom of the barrel because at the mm-hmm. end of the day, who has the power? Men do. <laughs> mm-hmm. No matter. No matter. I mean, but I mean, again, in this queer space, even the the high femme men have the power. And they're the ones punching down at women. Like that's just that's gonna just be the case under patriarchy, even if it is a queer patriarchy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Though that yeah. seemed to give us like one of my favorite one of my other like little moments, like favorite lines, Roger Bart. It's like, Can I take your hats, your coats, and your swastikas? Oh <laughs> my god, <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> I could not even whole... believe that these men had like like at least in the first one they like took them off, right? But in this one, they're just so horny for money. That oh, they yeah. like don't even realize what they're what they're promoting, and after like that whole fucking fifteen minutes dedicated to the Nazi song and then the you know the oath and all that, I was just like, do we like did we need all of that? And did we need did we need Pigeon Hitler? Like, is that something yeah. that we really needed? And- you know. There, there is a level of, and I understand again. It is like a history that you're trying to like add levity to because of the darkness that is there. Adding levity to it to brighten it a little bit to be like, yes, this was bad, but we still need to laugh. Like that being sort of the the driving force within this. At what point is it less of like making a fun moment or or like making something a little bit lighter? And then at what point are you kind of like codifying or like? Um, like codifying goodness in this way where it's like oh they're just so funny and silly and you're stripping so much badness away that there's kind of like a forgotten you're implying so much goodness and silliness in these bad 
characters that you're kind of like implying that they are good? Like, what is what is the line there? Oh yeah, it's like you for, <laughs> almost like you're by the end of the scene, the beginning of this, like you forget that Franz was like most definitely a big not like a lead Nazi, like a leader in the Nazi like party at, that had this connection with these yeah. folks. But you couldn't forget that by the end. Uh, also, third little nugget: uh, the pigeons were all created by the Jim Henson Creature Shop. Oh, oh gorgeous! As little puppets, of course. I love that. They partnered with it because it was New York based. They filmed all of it in New York, right? And like, yeah. I also thought, like, before I forget the little when I was because I sat and watched their credits, they had to thank and reference that the village people was owned by the village people, even though they never said the village village people once. Just by the the they literally used that brand like that tr- so perfectly that they had to put it in the credits that village people is owned by village people. And yeah. Oh. And you're like, <laughs> It's very it's, interesting. It's like, why it's, did you? It's absolute likeness for sure. Like, there's no mistaking. And even now, they didn't say it, but we're talking about it. Like, that was obviously a reference. Yeah. That they thought they had to pay those people, like, to allow to use that likeness for the bit or the bit. that It's almost like the deci- it goes back to that decision making of, like, where did, like, is this, did it have to go this, like, I don't know. It could have, they had so much time to reimagine this. Yes. and. And in some ways, like, they did do a better job to a point. But it's, again, it's just like, at the end of the day, were they just relying on the cheap laugh, the easy laugh? I mean, the the slapstick. Like the, I will say, I love watching Matthew Broderick get hit in the face by Will Ferrell, and that like, he did a full on flip and like land. That was like I was like, man, all right, fantastic. Yeah, he still got it. It was beautiful. But, like, <laughs> it's sort of like it's right in the middle of this this whole. I don't know. They're about to play. I don't. Know. It's very. I this, feel mixed about it. This movie yeah. does, um, and this is kind of like some of the issue I have with comedy centered around um, like problematic, incredibly problematic ideologies. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Is that, sure, you're you're laughing at Nazis. Like, that's a thing, right? But like, in the same time, you're still centering them in this narrative and you're removing like some of the context as to what they did and the horrific like acts that they did. And to me, that that that's in poor taste because, like now, like sure, everybody's laughing at Nazis, but now it's a joke, and now we have so many people in America that don't think it's real. You know what happened in the Holocaust and everything. So to me, yes. that is incredibly irresponsible. And in this film and in this context, now and then it becomes a myth, right? And then it becomes now, sure, like Nazis are part of pop culture, and they're such a staple in pop culture that you know, like there's Nazi mode on like Call of Duty where you like you know go and you like kill a bunch of Nazis or whatever like great and there's like whole giant video games built around this idea of kill the Nazis without these people that are like people that are consuming them realizing that they they are also racist you know or things like that but like but not being able to like have con- contextualization for this is what this is you know and so yeah. in this film like now everybody's cheering for Nazis and that's part of why I didn't watch Jojo Rabbit yet, right? Because Jojo Rabbit, it, like, and I understand that you know that um, it was done well from what I from what I hear. So I might yeah. give it, but like, I I do have a really hard time when it comes to that kind of subject matter because, like, because now the the symbols and the the people and the the whole context for everything surrounding the Nazis is now just laughable, and it is. To me, that's really, really, really horrifying. It got boiled down to on this, like on the stage, to like, okay, yeah, this is about Nazis, but uh, look at these showgirls with pretzel pasties and a large sausage. 
which from a like sort of over the top musical like like I enjoyed the I enjoyed costumes, the costumes and I enjoyed yeah. all of that and I thought it was so funny but it, you're right it does sort of like over it it kind of washes over or doesn't contextualize who those people are that are now you know I don't know is there and like all that imagery at the same time partnered with like beautiful like uh, like amazing dance like and choreography to be able to pull off some of those things but at the same time as all that time was dedicated to having them create a Nazi or a, a, like a not the uh, swastika moving at time you know what I mean like it's mm-hmm. sort of it just it's a lot of time and energy into those things yeah any any sort of level of this really just does nullify the history and nullifying that history is detrimental just moving forward because again you have people who don't necessarily even believe it happened when it is well documented and it is very 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 recent history you know um but even but even in that same turn like again what is what is that line and again especially as somebody who is not jewish i think in this context critiquing it yes just for the fact that it does sort of it kind of sanitizes it a little bit it sanitizes that history but like again i understand adding levity to something but where is that line where it's like now you're just you're you're making this a good thing instead of the bad thing that we know historically intrinsically at its foundation is so very very bad by adding this levity are you making it less bad and does that story need to be told like i found myself like with this it's like that's the thing that was chosen you know and um and they made it an even larger production in in this one right so i get excited about remakes and stuff because there are choices that can be made and a lot of the time the choices that are made are not like aren't really well thought out and so in this one like to you know the the first film is an hour and 30 minutes this one is two hours and 15 minutes so we got 45 extra minutes of more nazis Basically, we got more Nazis and more gay people, but like, not, yeah. it, it was just like, like you said, it's still that, like, uh, that misogynistic view of that. So, so those things were very hard for me to overlook. And there's a lot of questions because you're like, okay, so yeah, this, I feel a little bit weird about all this Nazi imagery and like sort of what that's saying, but I'm also remembering this is made by Mel Brooks. You know what I mean? By me, by a Jewish director or Jewish writer, and like all, and so you're like, what is it? it, It's it's the scope is very limiting, and it's almost like it's it's just very much so. It's I don't know how to explain. And I understand that like humor can be a way to deal with something traumatic, you know, and and things like that. But but yeah, I think you're right. I just I just don't know where like, and uh, I am not a Jewish person, um, so I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, no, and that's the thing. It's, it, it, I don't know either. And it's sort of, it, uh, it's hard because like I, as much as I appreciate, and one of the things I love about comedy and not necessarily in film, uh, but uh, it would like, sometimes it's, it's shown in that way if it's done right. But a lot of like stand up comedy is that idea of using those things and using like taking trauma and, you know, how you work through those, like how, how it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something it can be done really well can also be done very poorly and like the folks who end up doing like like the it's all about who's doing the joking so with mel brooks it's sort of like i don't know it's tough like i appreciate uh, so much about his writing and like some of the movies and films he's done like where you know giving a lot of voices to like i mean the amount of like richard Pryor and gene wilder that we have together like in these amazing characters and like these really funny very funny and enjoyable duos um but it's also it's just i don't know it's 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 well at it, the end of the day like the last why am i laughing 
where is it really i wish it was saying something and the comedy that i think that deals with those things like that heavier topics they're also saying something where it's making it has more commentary whereas mel brooks is just kind of presenting it um it boils down to intent right like mm. so in this case the intent with this or springtime for hitler as an idea was to be shocking and like in the story it's to be shocking it's like what's going to shock the audience to the point where they don't want to see this thing anymore so not only in the world is it supposed to be shocking but as a viewer watching this thing in that world we're supposed to be like oh shit like they're really like doing this that's crazy so the intent base level apart from anything else is to be shocking so the intent isn't really even great in this it's just to be again kind of like just we're just going to do it because we can boom whereas other like sort of stand-up comedy when they are dealing with trauma and sort of working through that as a means to humor it's more careful it's more impactful because it's careful because it's it's very clearly like this is a really bad thing however xyz punchline now it's fun the thing still exists but we have a moment of levity we move on to the next joke whereas in this one it really is just oh nazis okay well, <laughs> like, and then, oh that's like, it <laughs> big level two it's just like Max and Leo are profiting off of Nazi ideology. Yes. And profiting off of the reframing of Nazism, right? And in these ways, we just talked about, like, how, like, you can reframe, like, reframing um, domestic abuse through, like, you know, Disney films. Or reframing these things is not necessarily something, it's, to me, when you do it on a scale and to, in something like this, like, to me, it feels more irresponsible, you know and so and again like pulling back and like seeing the meta thing i'm like okay cool yeah these two people are going to profit off of off of this ideology this is bad this is awful but like you know this is what happens and also this is um this feels icky you know so like but this is what happens you know and this time too like with the one thing that i again i again did the this one was this one worse in some ways or more problematic is that in the first one, Max and Leo are still in jail at the end. They're just doing it, doing this play in jail. But this one, they're pardoned, like, be, and, yes. they're, and they're out. And so you yes. they made more heroes. I would have loved it if they were still the, the sort of anti-heroes. Like, they still aren't bad. These are still kind of like bad people who, you know, use this and they end up sailing in jail. That's funnier to me than, like, it just going to happy ending, though I know it's Broadway. And like that's sort of you know I don't know it's but, no it a hundred percent because it makes their badness acceptable and on top of making their badness acceptable they're now profiting from that experience so that experience itself because it is like prisoners in love or whatever like now it's just a musical about jail and mm-hmm. like mm. again profiting off of like legalized slavery uh cool another really fun thing to be capitalists of I guess and again, like, like what the- is what is that yeah. <laughs> And the only people of color in the whole movie pretty much appear in the dance sequence when they're doing the show in jail. Yes. So it's sort of like, why? Why were these re- decisions made? Yeah. Like, why? Are you presenting it this way? Are you saying it this way on for a reason? And why? Or were you that, like, not aware or unaware? that? You, yeah. But, like, the fact that they got worse, it makes me feel like it was more of a direct decision. But I just, I don't know. It's, this is yeah. the thing about loving thing, you know? Yeah, and, like, because like these men in this film are seen as the anti-heroes and especially 
this is shot from the male gaze for very specific reasons as to this is how, you know, how they view women, but also from the male gaze because this is, men are supposed to project themselves onto these two characters. You know, they want power, they want money, they want women, and they want the easiest, laziest way to do it, right? Um, and so these these people are just kind of like held up as like, hell yeah, fucking they got it in the end. See, everything works out, you know? And Max, or I'm sorry, Leo, um, he sought out um, Max, right? Like he, in the, in the first one, he didn't really know anything about him or about whatever, right? But like, Leo knew about Max and knew what he was and was like, you're great. I want this. I want to do this, you know? And like, in that way, like in the first one too, like he kind of like teaches him how to leverage his maleness to, to his advantage, right? But in this one, it's, it's more of like, I want to be a producer. I love you and your work. Take me under your wing. Teach me how to do this. And to me, that felt like, you know, again, more big incel energy, but it felt more gross and more disgusting in a lot of ways. And then later on to be like, oh, well, I was an honest man before you. And he like blames everything on Max when he's the one that kind of like sought that out and sought out that lifestyle and that and made that change, you know, so like, not able to take um to take responsibility for or accountability for his own actions um to me it was it was um it was even grosser because of all of those things but then i'm like oh is this supposed to be a commentary on how the audience is supposed to see themselves i don't know but then they win in the end so (laughs) it doesn't fucking matter because they get pardoned and they're out of jail (laughs) yeah i think the reason that they that they had um they had Leo end up with Ula in the same way and like actually get away and get away with the money and you know that he had sex and stuff, right? They're they're very overt about that and I think that is because of the male gaze in this. I think it is because they want people to identify with Max and to then also be like, no, you know what? I'm good. I'm not going to leave my buddy. He had everything that he wanted but still, he's still there for his bro, you know? Like, yeah. Um, so when you look at Leo as the everyman, to me, those kind of choices make more sense. And that's because they're trying to appeal to young men or they're trying to appeal to those male fantasies. Like, literally, everything about Leo is a male fantasy. Quitting your day job to go and pursue your dream of having power women and money and then taking all the money and fucking bolting and having a lot of sex somewhere and then coming like i mean just everything about him is just a gross incel boy you know yeah 100 percent. should we wrap it up yeah let's do it let's go to the outro we did it we produced we've put Productive, we produced productive. an episode on the producers. Yes, we did. And here we are. Let's talk about it. Final thoughts. <laughs> um, so, 1967. Eric, who was this for? I mean, I really, I think my answer is going to be the same for both men. <laughs> White men in general. Um, yeah, it's really like, it's so hard I, I say that so many times, like cishet white men uh, largely is just who this movie was for. I, I mean, the justification is in the episode, <laughs> as we said. But <laughs> yes, cishet white men, 100%. Who did you think this was for? Oh, 100% cis white men. Like, I don't think, yeah. I 
I can't even come up with something that is like witty or funny, which I usually can't do because <laughs> I'm not very good at doing that. Like I'm not very quick on uh, on my humor. But yeah, no, it is a hundred percent for for dudes, y'all. Like y'all. Uh, looking at a bunch of media, I'm just like internalized everything. This is where it comes from. Oh yeah. Um, this normalizes all of this bullshit. Um, fuck the patriarchy. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. Um. <laughs> uh, what about you, Jay? Who do you think this is for? As a Jewish queer feminist, I can definitely say this is for cishet white people, uh, <laughs> and especially white men. Uh, and it's sort of where it resonates for me. It's like it's making me again remember and realize and understand like the, the importance of unpacking and being aware of your privilege and where that is. Like, you know, and because I, I think like it's, it can be easy to say, well, you know, as a Jewish person, you know, he could talk about all these things, but, but no, like you have to be aware of those things and where those things intersect, like where your identities intersect. Like it's still possible. Like you said earlier, Eric, it's like, it's possible to be like gay or a queer person and like be trash in some ways too. So I um, rambled. It's for white men, <laughs> even though I like, uh, yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Eric, did you like it? I didn't, I did not. Um, I wanted to like going into it is definitely one of those. Like, I feel like I, I, I feel like I should have seen these and like, I wanted to like them. I did not like it. Did you like it? I did not like it. And I, I also wanted to say that I did because, um, you know, I grew up watching some Mel Brooks. I love Gene Wilder, but I needed the essay, not the, the outline. Um, I needed the final version, not the rough draft. Yes. You know, what do you think, Jay? Do you like it? I I like I like the elements of it, and it makes me it makes me wish like what I wish would happen is, and I I have found this with so many people, like whether it's family or people that I look up to or artists or you know actors or all those things is like I wish like they had opened up their mind. Like I want to hear the I want to see the actual queer like retelling of these stories like like because there were so many opportunities for being for like for this to for there to be humor in these things and there were so many great performances but i i yeah i i still like those elements of it but overall like it's definitely in one of the movies and i'm going to continue to say like hey i enjoyed it when i while i enjoyed it but it's it's (laughs) you it comes with those disclaimers like you know what i mean the art that comes with disclaimers Mm -hmm. like it's not, I understand that it's problematic. It's problematic as fuck. There's still elements that I enjoyed. I will say that. Yeah. Yeah, that's super valid. What about 2005 version? Eric, was this new, interesting, or the same? Progressive, regressive? How has the story evolved with today's ideals? I will say it was new and interesting just in the fact that it was like a genre shift just for it being a musical. Um, the same, obviously, just with its story. I think just base level it was regressive which is surprising because I, i'm just surprised by that <laughs> like i honestly didn't think it would be as regressive as it was or doubling down on these sort of problematic aspects i think i think it really is just kind of like it stuck where it was and just made it a little bit sillier i'd say you know what i mean mm-hmm. so yeah i think it was uh i think it was a mess <laughs> what about you what do you how do you, how do you feel I feel like it was new, er, 
Um, I feel like, um, like that 45 minutes that they added, um, at first I was dreading, but like it really did just set up a lot of context that was missing previously or, you know, just allowed, um, cause there, like, there are some parts that were so fucking funny with like, you know, yes. throwing, throwing the stuff in the freezer, you know, like or starting the clothes in the fridge, doing this. Like, I, I like that there was a little bit more room for those moments to breathe. So for me, that was, that was cool. Um, and so it was more interesting visually, I think. Um, I like that it felt like a Broadway production, like it felt like theater. And that's the theater kid in me, um, loving, loving to see that. But overall, I, and I feel like it was just, a, it was really regressive. I feel like a lot of the things, um, a lot of that 45 minutes that was added was just um, doubling down on problematic issues from the first one or creating entirely new context for things that didn't necessarily need context. Um, I have a really big problem with the reframing of Leo as rather than just kind of like a dude that was just came up off the street and was like, oh, okay, I guess, to him being an incel that kind of uh, idolized Max. Yeah, I feel like it just, it has not aged well. Um, what do you think, Jay? Uh, I think it definitely regressed in many ways, like especially that I didn't, in ways that I didn't notice until I started looking at it with that critical eye. But also I think like it's hard because like where there was room in the first one, for you to like where they didn't say it. So you, it made you think you had to go with like, well, what's your intent with this joke or what am I supposed to be laughing at here? This one, I feel like use that extra time to give you a funny image or show you, like show you, this is the joker. These are who, this is what it is. And it's always <laughs> like, okay, well I get it now. It's yeah, it's funny, but you're in some moments it can be funny, but you are doubling down on some of those tropes or some of like the, very basic punchline stuff like that you know i don't know it's i just want a better i want someone to do it again i i know they don't do things three times but like if you had somebody who was oh, oh, oh they, I do. they do oh they oh, do God. yeah um well let's see there's like three a star is born so there's like five there's wizard three, of oz's three mummies there's, they oh, they love to remake shit so like i just give it I, time they're gonna come back they're going to circle back in like 25 years for sure. Yeah. Turn and the hopefully musical they... into a non-musical. That's what I want to see. Someone turn this music. Now go the the other way and look at it through with a, uh, with an intersectional lens, like uh, an intersectional lens and make it for the time and give it representation. Like put at, like put accurate representation or not like, don't just go to, you know, tropes of people like, like, and see what you can do with it. I mean, I, I cause yeah. I do think like it's possible. Plot, it's funny. There's a the plot or the the idea. It can be humorous, but take something mm -hmm. like can you do it without the problematic aspects? Then if you can't do it without the problematic aspects of it, if you can't do it without Nazi imagery and uh, uh, misogyny and queer coded characters that are just the butt of the joke, then it's maybe not funny anymore. You know? Yeah. Maybe it's yeah. not going to work. <laughs> like the... yeah. Then maybe it doesn't need to be remade. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, who do you think it was for? Again, same answer. Cishet white men. Need I say more? <laughs> Jess, who do you think it was for? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, cishet white men and also people that left Broadway. Love the theater. That's true. Love it. Yeah. Jay? It's for Broadway. 
It's for broad <laughs> away. It is like it, the production, like all those elements. That's what it is. And the great thing about the theater is you can just put it on the stage, but you're not allowed to talk. You're not allowed to engage with it. You just sit there and have it. Like, because the minute we started dissecting this, you start to see all those issues and all those problems. So it was a great movie or a great musical. It was a yeah. wait. great musical. Yes. yes great movie. Absolutely. musical. Yeah. It was for people. You like musicals. Did you like it, Eric? No. Well, okay. You know what? I'm going to take that back. I liked Nathan Lane and Roger Bart point blank period. End of story forever and ever. Amen. I think that they're perfect. Almost anything that they've ever done for the most part. I am absolutely about um, the rest of it. I could, I could take it or leave it as a, as a general, I think it was, there was, better aspects to it but overall did i like it no did you um i like parts of it and parts of it are very fun to me um also yes nathan lane oh my god but yeah i don't i don't think i liked it especially after like really thinking about the glorification of nazis and even at like you know a humorous expense like to me um to me that's always just a little bit hard and i'm finding that like especially right now with what's happening with palestine and everything i'm just like i don't know if i need to watch media that glorifies um or even like humorizes violence um against jewish people so yeah, yeah i don't i don't know parts of it were incredibly fun but i'm not sure uh i'm not sure yeah Probably not. No. Jacob. <laughs> Jacob. <laughs> um, I like it if I turned off all the critical pieces of my brain. I enjoy it. Like, I enjoyed the watching of it. I enjoy singing the songs. Um, but I recognize that it, if I, when I engage with it on a critical level, that I understand that it's problematic. And I understand that there's things that can be better. And I wish it was better. I like it, but I wish it was better. I really do, you know, but I saw this movie on opening night at the theater. I saw it on stage. I've watched it a thousand times and it's hard to like, there's pieces of it that I won't be able to let go of that I've always enjoyed about it. But um, I'm not going to excuse the fact that it's, it's problematic. Yeah. Hollywood, stop making problematic shit so we can just (laughs) like it. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. I, I hate having these little caveats of, well, I liked parts of it, but like this yeah. parts was messy. But like, I don't know. Can I say if I, uh, I hate that. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we just did the thing. Um, thank you so much, uh, Jay, for being on. We forgot to mention at the beginning of the episode, but we are in a band together, uh, Jay Levy and the, and we released a tape recently. So you can check that out at our band camp. Um, anything else you want to say, Jay? No, thank you for having me. Thanks for watching. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, I have enjoyed, uh, I have enjoyed the conversations and I look forward to continuing them and continuing to hear y'all's perspective. And like, it's, it's, it's just been exciting. Um, just been exciting. It's yeah, it's, Oh, I just wish I just want to talk to y'all forever. Um, <laughs> but I really, I really love Danny too much for that. So I'm gonna, I, I'm, you know what I mean. I, I, we don't need to give him more to, to edit. Thank you for having me. You Thank too. you. 
um awesome well cool thank you so much for uh for doing this we love and appreciate you and uh thank you listeners thank you so much uh we hope you enjoyed the episode if you liked it please uh rate and review follow us on social media all the things also check out our patreon uh patreon.com forward slash nostalgia you can subscribe for as little as three bucks we're retooling it a little bit now so You'll have access to our Not Nostalgia show, which is our uh, every other week Patreon-only, Patreon-exclusive show. So check that out. If you love it, sign up. You'll love it. You'll love more of it. (laughs) (laughs) Our artwork and music is by Eric Lefebvre. Editing is by Danny Barkley. And thanks again for listening. And thank you, Eric. Thank you, Jess. And remember, stay cute. And stay critical. Bye-bye. This podcast has been brought to you by the Nostalgia Network. Visit the NostalgiaNetwork.com for more. You enter the dungeon and see the evil wizard pointing his wand directly at you. He says, Show me a funny and delightful actual play Dungeons and Dragons podcast, or I'll consume your souls! What do you do? I take out my phone and find Quest Friends Forever on Spotify. I show him how to find Quest Friends Forever on Apple Podcasts. I share the Quest Friends Forever Instagram and YouTube pages with him. And you all get critical hits! Yay! Quest Friends Forever is an actual play podcast starring four friends with varying levels of Dungeons & Dragons experience. Join us for new episodes every other Wednesday as we embark on fantasy adventures, play fast and loose with the rules, and laugh at each other's shenanigans. No prior D&D knowledge is required to listen, so everyone can feel free to join the fun. Quest Friends 4, that's the number 4, like how there's four of us, ever. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Quest Friends Forever.